Morning, everybody. I love Christmas. I do. I am a big fan of Christmas. I'm like a Christmas groupie. So I'm very excited to start a two-week series of teachings based solely around this holy day. And today my message is entitled, Holy Curiosity and a Revolution of Love. So buckle up. Here we go. I'm going to get right into it. Let's start with Holy Curiosity. This is the first two verses of the Gospel of Matthew. This guy, this follower of Jesus, he's talking about the birth of Jesus in chapter 2, and he says this, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came from Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. The Magi were these interesting characters in the scripture. They've been labeled in most of your your cards and stories as the three wise men. Um, hold on a second. I've got to turn off the fan again. We forgot. And it just drives me crazy. Yeah. Okay. Now I can preach. Now I can think. Okay. So the Magi, they're labeled as the three wise men. And it's interesting because Scripture doesn't tell us that there are only three of them. Or does Scripture tell us that they were particularly wise? We don't know. Now, Christian tradition has it that they were three kings and that their names were Melchior, Gaspar, and Balthazar, which sound like characters out of Star Trek or Guardians of the Galaxy to me, but we don't know, okay? The Magi, we do know this, they were part stargazers, part scientists, part mathematicians, part Zoroastrian priests, and they probably dabbled a little bit in sorcery, okay? And the verses we just read out of Matthew tell us something significant, and you might have missed it. It says that they came from the east. If you read through the whole entire Old Testament portion of the Bible, which I hope you'll do sometime in your life as a bucket list kind of thing, you'll discover something, that when people head east in the Scripture, they're always going the wrong way. They're heading away from God when they head east. A great example of this is a, a man named Cain killed his brother Abel. And then Scripture in Genesis says this, that he went out from the Lord's presence, and lived in Nob, which is a horrible name for a town, okay? And he was living east of Eden. So it's this picture. He does this thing. He commits a murder, and he leaves not only where he was living, he leaves the presence of God. He is away from paradise, away from his original intimacy with God and the plan for his life. So the Magi were obviously not the kind of characters you'd expect to find at the birth of our Lord. Them being there was shocking. It would be like if you bought tickets to a Metallica or a heavy metal concert and all of a sudden a banjo player walked up on the stage. You go, what is that guy doing there, okay? That's what it's like to find the Magi at the birth of Christ. But that's okay. There are a lot of things that we don't expect to find around Christmas, but every year we do. Two of them I want to mention. First of all, let's start with these hideous characters, okay? My family somehow loves nutcrackers. I don't know why. They're these creepy characters that crush nuts in their own mouths, okay? These are the things nightmares are made of for little kids, okay? In fact, let's just turn him around, okay? And then there's eggnog. I remember thinking, oh, eggnog, I hear about it all the time. And somebody gave me eggnog for the first time, and I gagged on it. I thought, this is the worst liquid that has ever passed my lips, okay? It's gagnog. I don't know who invented it. I don't know why they invented it. I only wish 
They never would have invented it, okay? I never want to taste eggnog again. And yet these things are found in Christmas, even though if it was up to me, nutcrackers and eggnog would have no part in a holy day, okay? I'm sure some of the religious folks at the time, some of the religious establishment at the time of the birth of Jesus felt the same way about the Magi. They, I'm certain of it, wanted to keep these unsavory characters out of Christmas. But for God, it just wouldn't be Christmas without the Magi. And he's in charge of the invitations. And quite obviously, he wants everybody at the party. That's why it says in 1 Timothy chapter 2 that God desires all of mankind to be saved, to be gathered to him, to come to this saving knowledge and relationship with him. The Magi were invited to the party They were up close and personal with Jesus because God wants everybody at the party. He wants everybody to be up close and personal with Jesus. One of the things that impresses me most about the Magi, though, is their curiosity. They probably didn't know anything about Jesus or of the ancient prophecies that foretold his birth. All they knew was this. They saw a star, and it was a unique, unusual star. And they knew enough about the stars to realize that stars like this don't appear for no reason at all. Whatever or whoever was under that star must be unique and special. So they made this long, arduous, difficult journey to find out what was under the star. And notice when they get to Jerusalem, I don't know if you caught it in verse 2, the first question they ask is, where is he? Where is he? Where is this person we've heard of that's born king of the Jews? Somewhere along in their journey, they deducted that the person that was under the star, that it was a person, and that that person was a king. And they wanted to find where this person was. These magi were seekers. They weren't hiders. They were seekers. And Christmas, is if it's about anything, it's about seeking. It's about locating God. Now, as I say this, don't get the idea in your head, though, that God is lost. He's not lost, nor is he hiding from us. In fact, if God played hide-and-seek, He'd be one of the worst hiders and seekers of all time because he says, seek me and you'll find me. He admits that he's a terrible hider. I found a couple of of, of pictures recently of terrible hide-and-seek players. Let's pop those up on the screen. Look at that kid. (laughs) Dang. (laughs) Okay. Now, in his mind, I know what he's thinking is, I can't see them. They can't see me. Okay. And look at this one. I love this next one. (laughs) Look at this kid. Okay. Again, same thing. I can't see them. They're not going to be able to find me. God is worse than them at hide-and-seek, okay? He wants to be located. But seeking him is not about God being lost. It's not about God hiding from us. It's about us being aware of the God who is all around us already, who is intertwined in our life. We've got to stop thinking of God as out there or up there and start thinking of him as right here. As the Magi can attest, He is easily located. I was reading a book, and I came across this little activity or this game, and it's called Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon. I don't know if you've ever tried it for yourself. You've got to try it, okay? And it it lets you know how far removed you are from Kevin Bacon. And I thought, and Kevin Bacon's an actor. You can look him up. You can Google him. And I thought, man, I'm not very close to Kevin Bacon. Then I did Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon. I was so surprised. The... I I was at a conference with a guy named Mike. Mike was in a movie with an actor named Marshall Allman who was in a movie, starred in a movie with Kevin Bacon called Jane Mansfield's Car, okay? I don't know if you ever saw that. 
And so I realized I'm only three steps away from Kevin Bacon. I didn't know that. I'm so much closer to Kevin Bacon than I ever realized I, I, I ever dreamt I could be. That's what I want to tell all of you today. You are much closer to God than you ever dreamt you were, okay? Probably than you even feel that you are right now. You're closer to God than you are even to Kevin Bacon. But to locate God, to become aware of God, you don't have to act all hyper-spiritual. You don't have to pray these absurdly long, boring, and loud prayers like some people do. You don't have to memorize large blocks of Scripture. The Magi didn't do any of that. You just have to let your holy curiosity get the best of you and start looking for God. Start moving towards Him. Start seeking Him. Wake up to the God who is with you already, whose Scripture says, in Him we move and live and have our being. The God that you're already encountering in a myriad of ways every single day of your life. Well, how do you wake up? How do we become people that are more spiritually aware or more spiritually awake? Well, Jesus tells us how. When you read through the Gospels, he's always telling people to consider things or observe things. I want you to consider the lilies of the field. Consider the birds of the air. And he told stories about people throwing wedding parties. He told stories about a guy walking in a field looking for treasure. He told stories about average, everyday, ordinary things happening. And don't you see, when you slow down your life enough, to notice the simple things in life, those simple things will alert you to the presence of God. The spiritual has a way of seeping through the ordinary in our life, okay? Like it did for the Magi when they just went outside one night and simply looked up at the sky. Something average, everyday, and ordinary. And the spiritual made its way through to them in that ordinary event. I want to put up a quote by one of my favorite theologians of all time, Bob Dylan, okay? He says this in one of his songs, In the fury of the moment, I can see the Master's hand in every leaf that trembles, in every grain of sand. Oh, he gets it, okay? God is about to act. He's about to act in our world, in our cities, in our families, in our lives. How do I know that? I know that because God is love, and one thing you got to know about love, love can't sit still. It can't contain itself. So my question for you is this. This Christmas, don't you want to notice him acting? I do. And if you want to notice him acting, then let your holy curiosity take you to a place where you can notice that. Second of all, let's talk about a revolution of love. I want to put up some further verses from... Matthew chapter 2, this is verses 16 and 18, and these aren't very fun, okay? When Herod, he was a king at the time, realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi because he wanted to find out where Jesus was, and they kind of tricked him and didn't tell him. He was furious, so he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity and the region who were two years old and under. This is horrible. It's called the slaughter of the innocent in accordance with the time that he had learned from the Magi. Wow. Then what was said throughout the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Those are some of the saddest verses in the Bible. But what it tells us is beauty and brutality 
existed side by side in the world that Jesus was born into. There was the beauty of a new birth. There was the beauty of the glowing look on a new parent's face when they look at their child for the first time. There was the beauty of this bright star. There was the beauty of a diverse group of people being unified under God's love. There was the beauty of God wrapping up all of His holiness and goodness and joy and peace and strength in the person of Jesus and giving us Jesus on that first Christmas day. But there was also brutality. If you read in the book of Luke, the story of Christmas, he mentions a guy named Caesar Augustus, one of the famous Caesars. And Caesar was referred to by the people around him at the time in the Roman Empire as the Prince of Peace, as the Savior of the world, as Lord, as King, and as the Son of a God. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? And it sounds all nice. But he was actually quite a brutal person. On the coins, um, there was this inscription at the time, and it was, it was a phrase that he would have used, and on, it, on the coins it said this, Peace is military victory. That gives you a little insight into Augustus's life, doesn't it? Because Augustus defined peace as slaughtering and wiping out everybody who opposed you. That was his idea of peace. He was a brutal man. And then there was Herod that we read about in these verses. Herod was this megalomaniac that loved position and power. So when he found out this Christ child was born and that this Christ child was referred to as a king, he wanted to kill him. And when he couldn't, he slaughtered all the innocent two-year-olds and younger in the region in this fit of jealousy and rage because he thought Jesus would grow up to threaten his political position and his power. And he was right about that, okay? Beauty and brutality existed side by side in the world that Jesus was born into, and it still does today. When you think of Bethlehem, the city where, where Jesus was born, you probably think of this kind of postcard setting and a star and some camels, and it's all lovely and very syrupy, okay? Let me show you the, the city of Jerusalem, or the city of Bethlehem in modern day. First of all, this is a gun. This is a stink gun. I don't know if you've heard of this. They don't shoot bullets. They shoot putrid water pellets at people that explode on them like really hard paintballs that actually injure your body physically, and then they cover you with the most horrid, rancid smell. That's on the wall surrounding Bethlehem. Not exactly a Christmas card, right? Then look at this other image up there. This is crazy. It's a church right next to an armed guard tower and a surveillance camera. Beauty and brutality in modern-day Bethlehem, okay? And it's the same in our neck of the woods. You can watch the news every single night, and you can watch stories of someone's ingenuity or kindness or generosity, and it'll be immediately followed by a story of yet another violent crime or a shooting. Beauty and brutality existing side by side, but even though they exist side by side, never let yourself be convinced that there's going to be a stalemate with beauty and brutality, that they're somehow going to end in a tie. They won't. I hate ties. I've told you that before. I'm way too competitive of a person, and I think intelligent of a person, to like ties, okay? As a basketball player, all my life growing up, I've gone to gyms or at camps with youth, and I've gone up to people that are playing basketball games, and I'll ask them a common question. I'll go, well, what's the score? Because I want to know if the game's almost finished because I want to play in the next game. And I can't believe how many times people have told me, 
well, we're just playing, we're not keeping score. And in my mind, I'm thinking, that's crazy talk, okay? Who does that? You're, per- you're playing in this game that's a perpetual tie. Nobody likes that. So then they ask me, well, do you want to play? And I go, yes, I do want to play, but only if we keep score, because if we don't keep score, this has no purpose. <laughs> this activity has no purpose and no meaning because nobody gets to win. I absolutely hate ties. When it comes to beauty and brutality, the good news for us at Christmas time is there is not going to be a tie. Beauty always wins. It always overcomes brutality because love is greater than hate. Hope is greater than despair. Okay, Light is greater than darkness. The beautiful things always win. Yes, brutality might win a few battles, but in the end, beauty wins out. I want to put up a scripture out of 1 John chapter 5 that proves this. It says, the light has shone in the darkness, and the darkness shall not overcome it. There's not going to be a tie. Evidently, God is competitive too, and because he's God, he wins every time, okay? I hope you can see that, and I hope you can also see this, that Christmas wasn't just a wonderful, glowing, warm-feeling event. It was actually the beginning of a revolution. At the birth of Jesus, Jesus was referred to, and we know this, as the Son of God, as the Prince of Peace, as a King, as the Savior of the world, as Lord. He was referred to by what they used to call Caesar Augustus. Jesus took over Caesar's title. So his birth wasn't just a warm, wonderful event. It was the marking of a new regime taking place. That's what it was. It was a revolution, a regime, a regime that would save the world, save it from all of the brutality they were experiencing. And Jesus didn't go about saving the world by killing all the bad guys like he was the hero in a Western movie. He didn't save the world by um, a, exterminating all of those who opposed him. That was the old regime's tactics. That's what Caesar Augustus did. Jesus had a different strategy. He saved the world by entering into the world, by stepping into the beauty and the brutality with us. And he came preaching this central message, the kingdom of God is near. And that message isn't about so much about going to heaven when you die as it is being part of a movement that ushers heaven to earth while you're still alive. In fact, in the original language that the, the Bible's written in, the word kingdom is a feminine phrase. When we hear kingdom, we think of things like power and force and hierarchy and privilege, don't we? But when Jesus spoke of kingdom, he was trying to convey a different message. He was trying to convey a message of healing and liberation and nurturing. That's what he was trying to convey. To Jesus, kingdom wasn't about domination. It never was. The kingdom of God to Jesus was about being part of a loving community. I want to put up a quote that I came across recently. I just love this quote. There is a magnet inside each of us that repels hatred and injustice, but draws us towards kindness and integrity and friendship. I love that. Because of the magnet that is inside of me, I don't believe in systems and rules that that help the rich and yet oppress the poor. Because of the magnet that's inside of me, I do not believe 
in developing new technology and advancing new technology so we can come up with new ways to kill people more effectively. Because of the magnet inside of me, I don't believe that peace comes through military might and aggression, and I never will. And in fact, when I hear world leaders get up on stages all across the world and talk about peace and aggression and how well they go together for their particular country, it frustrates me. Because combining those things, in my mind, is like trying to combine ice cream and manure. You can do it, but nobody really benefits in the end, okay? Jesus saves us not by increasing aggression. He saves us by setting us free from our addiction to power and violence and showing us a better way to live in a new kingdom. There's a super cool scripture in Mark chapter 11, and it's never preached on in Christmas, and I can't figure out why, because it has everything to do with Christmas. And it involves Herod, whom we just talked about. And Herod was considered by many historians to be the richest person that ever walked the face of the earth. He had so much wealth, didn't even know what to do with it. So he ends up just building things. He built ports. He built amazing stadiums. And he even built his own mountain. Who does that? He just decided, I'm rich. What should I build? A mountain. And it's called Herodium. And on top of this mountain, he placed this magnificent palace. You can look out, if you stand on the Mount of Olives, you can look out and see where Herodium used to be, where Herodium is actually, and you can also see the Red Sea behind it, okay? And you can Google images of this. The Mount of Olives was a famous hangout, a favorite hangout of Jesus. And it's the location where Jesus gathered a group of his friends and uttered these words, which I'll put up on the screen. Remember, you can see Herodian. You can see the Red Sea. And he says to his friends, Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain... Go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in their heart but believes that what they say will happen. It will be done for them. That's the coolest verse. So what Jesus is saying to these people is he's saying, hey, if you have faith in me, which you do, if you have faith in who I am, if you have faith in what I'm doing, if you have faith in the direction this new regime is heading, then you can be a part of bringing the old regime down. You can be a part of casting the ways of Herod and Caesar Augustus into the sea. You can become a peacemaker, and you can join me in this revolution of love. This is so great. We get to live these kind of lives. We still, to this day, get to participate in Jesus' revolution of love. So you have to ask yourself some important questions. I don't preach on politics very much in here, and rightfully so. I, I, got, a, I got enough to preach on out of the Bible. But these... But Christmas is political. It just is. So you have to ask yourself these questions. Are my political leaders in city, in state, and nationally, are they following Jesus, the ways of Jesus, whether they claim to be a believer or not, or are they following the ways of Caesar? Are their actions creating peace in the world, or are their actions creating more conflict? And if the answer is they're following Caesar, then let your voice be heard and rise up in opposition to that, and simply vote for new ones, okay? And you also have to ask yourself this question, much more personal. Am I following the ways of Jesus, or am I following the ways of Caesar? Are my actions towards the people around me, do those actions and those words bring a sense of peace to them, or do they feel much more conflict and trauma 
when they're around me? Do they feel like I'm loving them? Or do they believe I'm just trying to control them? Make the decision to follow Jesus, to further the revolution of love, to choose to do the beautiful thing and not the brutal thing, because that's what Christmas is. It's Jesus saying, i got a new way for you to live, a new kingdom for you to participate in, and it has nothing to do with brutality, but it has everything to do with Jesus.